Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Okay. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you for coming out to this uh, heritage event, Assessing Asia's Digital Future. Uh, very excited for this program this morning, which is going to sort of bridge together two worlds in the D.C. policy community, the, the Asia community, which I consider myself a part of, and, and the tech community, which I very much don't consider myself a part of. I'm sort of at the Apple 2GS level of tech proficiency right now. Uh, we do have a great tech fellow here at Heritage who unfortunately could not be with us today. Uh, Klon Kitchen has done some, some great work on the questions we'll be covering today, including 5G. Uh, he recently did an issue brief on the, the topic, which is available to those here in the audience, but uh, online on the Heritage website for those interested. Um, he's uh, working overtime these days and wasn't able to be here. But I encourage you to uh, look up some of his work on, on our website. Just a few weeks back, Klan, myself, and our uh, Asia fellow, our China fellow, Dean Chung, did an event here covering 5G. And it was sort of an eye-opening experience for me as a relative newbie to the topic. In doing research for the program, um, I sort of had to get myself up to speed on, on 5G and, and some of these issues dealing with Huawei that have been in the news lately. And it quickly became apparent that there was sort of a lack of general public knowledge on the subject, but also several misunderstandings, you know, misunderstandings about how this works, how 5G works, the significance, uh, misunderstandings about the difference between the core and the edge, um, misunderstandings about uh, Huawei and 5G. You know, I think there was this idea that uh, Huawei was the only company that could provide all components of 5G by itself. And somehow that bled into Huawei is the only company that can provide 5G. Uh, and we've, of course, you know, learned in the months since that's not the case, that there are alternatives that we're setting them up here in the U.S. and other countries around the world. Um, misunderstandings about the national security implications of, of 5G. And so we thought it would be uh, very useful to have two high-level government officials come and talk to us about what the Trump administration, how it's approaching some of these critical questions. Um, you know, I, one gets the sense that um, we had sort of fallen asleep at the wheel on this issue and had woken up just before the car went off the cliff. We were sort of at the precipice of this new, you know, generational a defining technology that would have consequences potentially for years or more than a decade to come. And we woke up to, to the significance rather late. And I want to say to the Trump administration's credit, you know, government is not known for moving rapidly and efficiently on questions. And yet, 
this administration, I think, has done a very good job understanding the issue, understanding the problem sets within this issue, and moving fairly quickly and efficiently to try and come up with policy solutions, to try and generate international discussion, to talk with our partners and allies about solutions. And so I, I give them a lot of credit, including the two people sitting here with us today. Um, our first speaker, uh, Robert Strayer, is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Cyber and International Communications and Information Policy. In this capacity, he leads the development of international cybersecurity, internet, data, and private privacy policy, and related negotiations with foreign governments. Previously, Mr. Strayer served as General Counsel for the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the Director of the Homeland Security Project at the Bipartisan Policy Center, and the Deputy Staff Director on the U.S. Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. Our second speaker, Jonathan Fritz, is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for China, Mongolia, Taiwan, and Hong Kong Affairs. He formerly served as the Director for Bilateral and Regional Affairs at the State Department's Office of International Communications and Information Policy, as well as the Acting Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in China, among other roles. So I've asked um, Rob and Jonathan are both going to come up and speak for about 10 to 15 minutes. And then we're going to move to a sort of moderated discussion before we open up the floor to Q&A. And I think we've all agreed that we prefer this to be an interactive discussion. So we're going to leave plenty of time to get the audience involved. And with that, uh, thank you to both of our speakers. And Rob, if you could kick us off, we'd yeah. be grateful. Well, thanks, Jeff, for that very kind uh, introduction. And uh, I want to thank the Heritage Foundation for organizing this event on assessing Asia's digital future and for inviting us from the State Department to talk about uh, the leadership role that we're playing on 5G technologies on the, and on the digital economy. Uh, I also want to salute the uh, Heritage Foundation for the very practical work that you were just mentioning, increasing understandings about the fifth generation of wireless technology. You know, it really uh, is an area where we need to see a, more of a demystifying of the technology. You know, 5G is things that we largely already have in the world today. You know, you could break into component parts of uh, switching, networking, transport layers, uh, radios, antennas. You know, there's going to be evolutions in these, but uh, really the transformative part of this is going to be the software that brings it all together. So, uh, you know, explaining to people what, who is behind this, who's in the ecosystem, uh, how it's all going to work together are very important parts to understanding as a foundation before you can actually get to the part of setting policy and understanding policy prerogatives and not just buying into uh, some notions uh, that are more uh, uh, marketing or propaganda about uh, who's leading in these fields and what's what's going on. So I appreciate the work that you all are doing in that area. Uh, I'm hoping to be able to talk about 5G for a little bit, and then I want to also cover uh, some of the very other important issues in, in Asia, which is the you know, the need to maintain uh, cross-border data flows so that uh, what underpins our digital economy will exist in the future, that we can keep an Internet that doesn't become more fragmented, an Internet that benefits uh, freedom of information sharing and um, uh, freedom of expression in the ways that we've seen in uh, roughly three decades that we've had the Internet around, uh, or at least the World Wide Web around, uh, that we continue to see that to happen in the future. So uh, I'll start with 5G. Uh, we're all very excited about the potential for 5G. Uh, 5G will empower all kinds of critical infrastructure. Uh, it's going to empower uh, new types of critical infrastructure like uh, autonomous transportation networks, uh, autonomous vehicles, 
Uh, it's going to, uh, because of the way it's going to interconnect all kinds of devices and sensors known as the Internet of Things, we're going to see uh, telemedicine, new types of healthcare being provided through the, uh, the communication network on top of the communication network that is supplied by 5G. But we're also going to see our legacy critical infrastructure systems move on to that infrastructure provided by 5G because of the communication uh, and ability that it will have to connect all these devices and sensors. So for example, the distribution of electricity as it moves to the smart grid will be empowered by uh, 5G communications. We're also going to see our distribution of water and other types of public services rely on 5G. So with all of those very critical services being provided by 5G, there's really nothing that could be more important to have a very strong security focus than the, the 5G systems that we, we have in place. Uh, so, you know, our uh, discussions that we're having with partners and allies around the world is that we need to think about having a risk-based security approach to all of 5G technology, and that requires us to also to look closely at the supply chain. In 5G, we will really have what some in the cyber industry, cybersecurity industry call an expanded attack surface area. That's for a couple of reasons. One is that there'll be so much more software driving what the functionalities that we're going to see on 5G and all those critical services up the value chain. So we'll have that many more opportunities for adversaries potentially to interrupt those services or to cause data to be uh, exfiltrated or diverted to other places, or if there are other kinds of manipulation of that data or manipulation of those systems. So we have to be concerned about how those systems uh, are, 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 are governed uh, over time. Um, so we have to be very careful about uh, who those vendors are because they're in a very privileged position on uh, the 5G network. Uh, in that regard, one of the most important uh, review items or areas of evaluation that we think need to take place for 5G networks is looking at the relationship between a vendor and the company where it's in the country where it's headquartered. That is, we think that a country that is able to exert influence over a vendor company without the due process of law, without an independent judiciary standing in between to ensure that uh, decisions about how that vendor operates are done in the best interests of citizens around the world and in, done in a way that follows the due process of law. We think that vendor could be told to take action that are in the interests uh, only of that, that country where it's headquartered. So a specific example that we cite there is the Chinese national intelligence law from 2017. It requires all people and entities within China to cooperate with the mandates of the Chinese intelligence and security services. So they can ask them to do uh, all kinds of things that would not be in the interests of uh, citizens where that vendor has placed its equipment uh, in third countries. So in the United States now, we have all of our major carriers, uh, wireless carriers, saying they're not going to use untrusted vendors that are subject to that kind of uh, requirement by a government in the, in the case of China. So they will not use their two largest uh, vendors, which are uh, for wireless technology and 5G, Huawei and ZTE. Uh, we're talking to governments around the world about how it's in uh, their citizens' interest to ensure that their 5G networks are also not subject to compromise or subject to having data being exfiltrated uh, back to China. We do know, of course, that China in the past has a, a history of intellectual property theft through cyber means. Uh, they're behind one of the most notorious 
uh, thefts of intellectual property known as the cloud hopper compromises that the United States and 15 other governments attributed to the Chinese Ministry of State Security last December. That involved the compromise of managed service providers and cloud providers on a global basis. And that was uh, a way to get at the intellectual property of uh, major companies in more than 12 different countries around the world. They then took that information uh, in a form of industrial espionage and then shared it with the Chinese private sector. So a similar uh, venue of attack could be provided by 5G if it's in the wrong hands. Um, let me just mention what we've done here in the United States uh, to protect our networks. As I mentioned, our four largest wireless carriers have committed to not using untrusted vendors. Uh, in addition, on May 15th, President Trump uh, signed an executive order uh, to secure information communications technologies. Uh, there, uh, we will seek to uh, prohibit transactions uh, from uh, companies that are under the jurisdiction or control of an adversary government and that, w- that may harm our national security. Uh, that executive order requires the Secretary of Commerce to produce regulations along that line within five months. Uh, so that is that is uh, moving forward. As I mentioned earlier, I also want to talk about um, the importance of uh, free flows of data. You know, the, the Internet, uh, uh, it really depends on the ability to access uh, points around the globe to acquire information and data and share share information and views. Our society and all, our, all the economies around the world have benefited tremendously from this free, free flow of information regime over the years. Um, it is something that underpins uh, global supply chains. And it underpins uh, global ways of uh, providing services. It's added tremendous amounts to our economies in the form of GDP growth. And around the world, it's empowered people who never had access to be able to market their goods online, to participate in the e-commerce world that they never would have had a chance to without the free flows of data across borders. Quite concerningly, we're seeing a few governments uh, seek to limit uh, the flows of data across borders, including in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, we've seen laws passed in India and in Vietnam that would restrict the flows of, of data. Um, you know, there's really... Three legitimate reasons I think that folks are concerned about uh, about data and causing it to be localized, and one that's completely illegitimate. The illegitimate one is that uh, it's it's a form of digital protectionism, a way of uh, causing data to be uh, put on servers in specific countries in order to benefit the local economy, to cause there to be you know jobs and and uh, equipment put in a in a local sphere for that the purpose of just. Um, uh, in, in elevating their companies over foreign competitors. Uh, but the three reasons that we seek to address in our dialogues with other countries about their concerns that sometimes do lead to data localization are uh, security, privacy, and the need for law enforcement to access data uh, when they need to, to prosecute a crime. Uh, on the security front, uh, you know, global cloud providers follow best practices. They house the data where it's most efficient, and they do follow best practices there. If a country requires uh, localization of data at a particular physical location, that physical location may not be the one that meets the top-notch security standards or follow the best practices related to security of the servers and other uh, at the logical layer of uh, protection. So, you know, there's really no security benefit. In fact, it might be a harm to have uh, data localized in an unsecure physical location. 
Uh, the second point about is about privacy. Uh, some countries seek to have data localized uh, in order to implement their own uh, privacy regimes and try to force data to meet different standards on its uh, local basis. And there, uh, we we seek to provide, we seek to work with other governments to develop uh, global privacy regimes that follow our sort of best Western values about how data should be protected. Uh, if you look around the world, there really is a common understanding about uh, largely uh, around the world about uh, how uh, data should be protected from a privacy perspective. Uh, we all value the importance of being able to control the uses of our data to, to be able to determine how it's going to be collected, stored, and processed. Uh, we also think it's important that there be transparency about that process. We have transparency about how our data is going to be used. Uh, we also seem to value the importance of having access and, and, uh, and the ability to correct errors in that data. And lastly, it's almost a universal principle that there should be some accountability, that companies and governments that retain data, there should be some kind of accountability for the ways that they, they use data. Um, you know, roughly since 1980, when the OECD first announced uh, privacy principles that were, uh, that were uh, agreed upon by the industrialized democracies, those same principles have been uh, under, underpinning uh, privacy regimes ever since. Uh, most recently, of course, we've had the European Union take a much more uh, prescriptive approach to these principles and very tightly defining uh, what will be legitimate use cases for, for data. But they are basically underpinned by the same principles overall that we value here in the United States and across uh, Western democracies. Um, we are still seeing how the European Union's uh, general data protection regulation, GDPR, plays out over time. Uh, it's only been around uh, a year and, and a month now. It went into effect on May 25th of 2018. Um, uh, there is still a lot to be determined about the use cases uh, from what they call the data protection authorities in each of the uh, 28 member states of the European Union. Uh, but it's important that those, uh, those requirements that come about because of GDPR not interfere with data flows. And turning back, of course, to our focus here on Indo-Pacific, um, you know, they're wrestling with the issues of uh, how do they protect data appropriately? Do they follow a U.S. model that's more flexible? Uh, we've joined with uh, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, APEX, uh, cross-border privacy rules. That's a set of flexible rules that we uh, can allow to be stood up in each country that allow uh, certification of practices by different companies and then allow data to be easily ported, uh, transported across borders uh, without creating major impediments to those, those data flows while still ensuring that those key privacy principles uh, are maintained, the same ones that I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, we think that's been a, a successful model that we've stood up uh, and will be, be so uh, in, in the future. There's now eight uh, countries that are part of the APEC region who are, uh, have signed up to these cross-border privacy rules. Uh, countries in the Indo-Pacific, of course, are weighing how they want to approach this. They're looking at the GDPR model. They're looking at uh, the Asia-Pacific, the APEC cross-border privacy rules. So, um, you know, we're talking to them about the importance of us all having our own separate constitutions, <coughs> institutions, and legal structures. But we need to overlay that with uh, privacy uh, rules that are uh, flexible enough that they can allow us to have the, the transit of, uh, of information across borders uh, to still maintain the free flow of data while uh, maintaining privacy. 
so I'd like to turn to the third reason that uh, we often hear that uh, there's an interest in data localization, and that's for law enforcement purposes. So if there's a crime that occurs in a country, law enforcement wants the ability to, uh, to uh, uh, serve a warrant or some kind of process to acquire the data that might inform their prosecution of a crime. Uh, last March, in March of uh, 2018, we took a major step in that area in the United States by passing the Cloud, the Cloud Act, which is the Clarifying Lawful Overseas Use of Data Act. That allows the administration to sign bilateral agreements with different countries around the world for us to acquire data that they may have on their servers related to major crimes and them to ask there to be legal process in the United States to acquire data that are on servers in the United States. We think this can be a very effective mechanism to provide law enforcement the tools that they need to acquire data while still ensuring that there's protection of due process and human rights around the globe. So we think that we can address each of these three uh, concerns that there have been about uh, about uh, uh, data localization that, that, that have been used as reasons to have data localization. I think it's really important that we continue to see the free flows of data in, in, in uh, Asia-Pacific in particular. There's going to be a lot of growth in the future. A lot of it's going to be driven by uh, digital services and digital trade. If you look at just the uh, Southeast Asian countries that form ASEAN, uh, they, their workforce alone is the third largest workforce in the world. Uh, there's going to be tremendous growth in their economy. They're already roughly a GDP, collective GDP of $2.7 trillion. Uh, they're going to grow on a very rapid basis. They're going to be a key trading partner uh, for the United States. Uh, so it's, it's really important that we continue to see data flowing among those countries and with the United States and, frankly, the rest of the world in order to see that kind of economic growth continue in the future. So with that, I think I'll, I'll stop and turn it over to Jonathan. Great. Thanks. Thank you, Rob. And, and I'd like to echo Rob in thanking you, Jeff, and Heritage for having us here today. It's worth pointing out that until a month ago, Rob was actually my boss. So hopefully uh, our presentations are going to sound like they're thematically coherent here. If not, uh, I'll probably get in big trouble. Um, so I'm going to pick up where, where Rob left off. He, he mentioned the fact that, uh, you know, given, you know, sort of the pervasive and very powerful nature of this new 5G technologies and the very clear ramifications for both national and economic security, it's absolutely essential that we rely on, on trusted vendors. So I'm going to spend some time talking in a little bit more detail about why it is that Chinese ICT firms are ones that we have serious concerns about when it comes to, you know, this, this phrase of trusted vendor. And I should preface this by stating that this is not just about Huawei. Um, of course, it is true, and, and we obviously are all, probably all cognizant of the fact that Huawei has a fairly long track record, both of IPR infringement and skirting sanctions. This has resulted in a couple of federal indictments. There are other stories that uh, one can see in the press, both here in the States and around the world, of alleged Huawei involvement in, in things dabbling on the edges of, of, of espionage. You had some arrests in Poland. There are some newspaper articles out of the Czech Republic just this week about uh, things that Huawei was doing with uh, data on, on clients and so on and so forth. Those are relevant, but those are not, of course, the, uh, the key part of our concern. As Rob said, the key part of our concern is that Huawei and any other Chinese company or individual is subject to coercion by the Chinese state to cooperate and collaborate, support uh, intelligence and security uh, functions. Uh, as Rob pointed out, one particular law, which is uh, China's national intelligence law, which was promulgated in 2017. And, uh, and as Rob pointed out, Article 7 of that law is very clear that uh, 
uh, it's, it's very sweeping language. Um, any individual, any organization uh, must cooperate with Chinese intelligence services and must keep such uh, cooperation secret, which might have something to do why, with why Huawei is so you know, uh, publicly keen to disavow any cooperation with Chinese intelligence agencies. Um, as far as we can tell, this obligation applies both to state-owned and private sector uh, companies in China. Uh, and of course, there are other uh, jurisdictions around the world where companies do have some obligations to work with their governments. But the, the, the unique thing about China is that there are no formal checks and balances on the power of the state to compel companies. I think, again, my, Rob mentioned the fact that there is no independent judiciary, no opposition party, no free press, basically no formal checks and balances that would uh, be able to um, stand in the way of what would be a, you know, an undue attempt by the executive power to compel a company to do something it ought not to do. Uh, and of course, this has been made uh, pretty clear in not only the national intelligence law, but in a number of other security statutes that China has passed in recent years that have similar uh, sweeping uh, provisions um, about the responsibilities of individuals and organizations to support uh, state security and intelligence um, uh, activities. These include the national security law, China's counterterrorism law, its cybersecurity law. And, and I, on an aside, I would point out that the cybersecurity law, in addition to the, the concerns with uh, you know, 5G security that we're focusing on here today, that also set a very bad precedent in terms of free data flows. You know, Rob mentioned some of the others who have unfortunately followed in the in the in the path blazed by the China cybersecurity law in terms of data localization and very onerous uh, multiple review uh, mechanisms for uh, for anyone in the ICT sector in China. Um, with regard to the lack of checks and balances, this is not something that uh, you have to take the word of someone from the U.S. State Department on. Uh, Xi Jinping himself gave a speech to security officials in Beijing early this year where. And he made this very clear himself. He uh, he had a line in there where he said, you know, China absolutely will not walk the Western road of constitutional governance, separated powers, or judicial independence. And it's interesting to note that, uh, you know, the various laws that we're talking about here, like the national intelligence law, in our view, those are not actually the source of the party state's ability to compel companies or individuals to do its bidding. Rather, they're a very convenient codification of something that is fully within uh, the prerogative of the, of the Chinese Communist Party uh, to mandate. And again, there is another Xi Jinping quote that very aptly illustrates this. The party leads everything everywhere in China. Um, so uh, these laws, again, if China revoked them or, or repealed them uh, tomorrow to satisfy some of the concerns in the international community, I don't think this would actually change the the fact that the party would still be able to compel companies and individuals to do its bidding. Um, so, uh, in addition to the fact that the Communist Party obviously has pretty much, you know, at least in a formal sense, unchecked sway uh, within China's own borders, uh, what we've been seeing over the last number of years is that influence uh, extending well beyond Chinese borders. And there are a number of very troubling examples of this that, uh, that come to mind. The disappearance of the Chinese national who had been the head of, the, uh, of Interpol, uh, ongoing efforts to intimidate Uyghur and Tibetan activists, even though they're living in, in foreign countries. A couple of publicly revealed instances of massive rerouting of data by Chinese telecommunications companies to China when there was no uh, logical reason for that data to end up there. 
uh, Chinese efforts to pursue economic criminals in foreign countries without the knowledge of the host country governments. These and a number of other activities all raise concerns about how the Chinese government is exercising extraterritorial reach and frequently uh, in violation of what we would consider due process, the rule of law, etc. Another point I'd like to make is that uh, there's a very clear uh, there's a very clear manifestation of of the fact that the Chinese government views the success of its ICT companies and none less than, than Huawei at the top of the list views their success abroad in in third country markets not just as a big commercial interest of China's, which is natural, of course, but a huge strategic interest. Uh, Huawei and its uh, fellow Chinese tech companies uh, receive a large number of whether direct or indirect subsidies from the Chinese state. Um, And this should come as no surprise because, in fact, China has in a number of key sort of Xi Jinping flagship initiatives identified Huawei and other Chinese ICT companies as serving top-level uh, priorities, uh, policy priorities. The uh, Silk Road component of the One Belt, One Road comes uh, to mind. Uh, this is a you know, very clearly stated policy priority of uh, Xi Jinping's administration, uh, whereby the export of Chinese ICT uh, goods and services, this includes absolutely a 5G uh, network infrastructure, can help export China's vision of, of Internet governance uh, and cement China's influence with countries around the world. Similarly, on the industrial policy front, the Made in China 2025 initiative clearly highlights the ICT sector as one of 10 or a dozen uh, key sectors that China would like to dominate uh, by the year 2025. Uh, Again, uh, you are seeing this uh, not only in these massive, uh, or sorry, these these sort of flagship policy initiatives, but also by the huge amount of support that China is able to provide its companies, which, by the way, is very helpful when Huawei is competing with companies like Nokia or Ericsson or Samsung, which are forced to operate on a market-based principle, uh, and Huawei is able to frequently undercut uh, their prices and offer, at least in the short term, far more favorable financing terms. So I think this is really the core of our concern. It's not any one company, although Huawei, because of its very strong position in the 5G infrastructure sector, is one that has obviously attracted quite a bit of attention. Um, but we really do think that uh, countries around the world need to be very, very carefully focused on the threats that, that Huawei and other Chinese companies do pose, cybersecurity to their national security, to their economic competitiveness, and, of course, uh, to their human rights, uh, privacy being one of those. Um, in the region where I currently work, East Asia, we've already seen some good progress as we have uh, tried to um, – you know, work with our friends and allies to, to make them more aware of, of the threats, uh, both Australia and Japan, for example. Uh, neither of them have excluded Huawei or ZTE or any other uh, companies by name or even by national origin, but they have, in fact, instituted uh, security procedures that have effectively excluded Huawei and ZTE from their 5G networks. We still have a lot of work to do. Uh, and we're actively engaged with uh, with Rob's shop uh, and others, not only in the State Department, but around the uh, interagency in the U.S. government to prosecute that campaign. Um, I will leave it at that and uh, look forward to the interactive part of the of the program. Thanks. Thank you. Well, that was great. And um, I had the, the pleasure of uh, participating in a private roundtable uh, with Jonathan to discuss these issues a few weeks back, and I found it incredibly helpful and informative in bringing me up to speed. And 
Um, I think already uh, with your two speeches, you've done a great job sort of setting the scene for where we stand today. Uh, if we imagined a sort of spectrum of possibilities in how these 5G networks are developing, I think you, you would maybe put the United States at one end where we've come out rather firmly against untrusted vendors, and we've had U.S. firms come out uh, fairly firmly on this question. At the other end, maybe you have some uh, Chinese neighbors that have sort of welcomed in Huawei to their 5G networks and not put any restrictions on. But we find, I think, a lot of people in the middle, mm-hmm. including some partners who – maybe already have a larger Huawei uh, presence in their country uh, than we had and have a m- sort of more difficult time adopting the type of approaches we have. And so you see a lot of countries trying to take a middle ground approach and either release a very high set of standards or uh, try and let in untrusted vendors but keep them on the edge mm-hmm. rather than allow them into the core in the sensitive networks. Now, the last time we had the opportunity to speak about this and, and talking to other knowledgeable officials, they were not particularly confident that that's a effective strategy, mm-hmm. that in the 5G world, trying to limit certain actors to the edge and keep them out of the sensitive core may not be so effective. So I just wonder uh, your sort of general thinking on how these mis- uh, risk mitigation strategies are proceeding in, in some of these countries in the middle. Will that work? Uh, can they um, achieve security by setting high standards or keeping um, untrusted vendors out to the edge? Yep. Outstanding question. Yeah, if I may start with that. I think uh, one front, front point to note on that as uh, countries say we will allow untrusted vendors only in the edge and not in the core of their networks is to acknowledge that at least they're acknowledging that the core of the network needs to be protected and they're going to keep untrusted vendors, in particular Huawei, out of the core of their, their network. So that I think is a recognition of this, the geopolitical security risk that they don't want to set themselves up for. Um, you know, the evolution in 5G is to have smart components uh, in computing power close to the user. That's because you really need to have low latency, a low connection time uh, between a device or sensor and where the computing is taking place. You need that for all kinds of things, including uh, you can imagine autonomous vehicles need to have uh, very, very, very low uh, latency rates in order to, to operate effectively. So any of those components are basically become critical components to the network wherever that computing is taking place. So you would not want them to be potentially under the control of an adversarial uh, government. Um, so we have uh, great concern about the, you know, our, our position is that anywhere uh, in the network, there should be no untrusted vendors when we move to 5G. Uh, where there is uh, a legacy system that's 4G with untrusted vendors, we think over a period of years, uh, as you move to 5G, that uh, telecom operators can migrate away uh, under normal uh, technology replacement cycles. You know, the life cycle for technology is actually relatively short. You're always having to update, even within uh, the 4G LTE, uh, if you will, generation. There's uh, constant upgrades taking place. So as you move to the next uh, upgrade, you, w- you should you should migrate to something that's uh, more secure. We also think that there's been some proposals from a very technical perspective to look at technology as it stands today and do source code review. Well, source code review implies that you're going to review millions of lines of source code and find even that one line of source code that might be a flaw in the system or actually a a backdoor or a compromise to the network. That's really just not something you can effectively do, especially with the time pressure to do these upgrades. There could be upgrades on a daily basis 
particularly if it's a critical security patch that needs to take place, you need to implement that upgrade immediately. You can't take the time to review it because you're, you'd have to weigh whether or not you're going to keep yourself vulnerable to that other security vulnerability uh, while you're, you're trying to review uh, the source code. And we also know just with regard to Huawei technology from the United Kingdom, they've had a history with uh, Huawei. They have a, a Huawei oversight board, so cybersecurity review center. And they found more than 500 vulnerabilities in the current version of Huawei firmware and software. Uh, so they've actually come to the conclusion that there are uh, serious and systematic defects in Huawei software engineering and cybersecurity competence. So there should be great pause even with that company in particular to know there's that many vulnerabilities that really can't be uh, verified or validated on a, on a, in a quick enough basis by, uh, by uh, testing uh, protocols. That is why we have sought to work with other governments to try to develop general security principles that can be adopted. We joined in a conference that the Czech Republic hosted in early May with about 40 other governments. It came up with a list of about 20 basic cybersecurity principles that should be applied to 5G. And of course, among those, uh, I would highlight that we, we, we should look at the model of governance in the legal system where the vendor company is headquartered with regard to the, the country that can have influence over that vendor. Uh, we've seen that same kind of principle already adopted in uh, the European Union Commission's guidance to its country, saying that they should look at the, the, uh, the model of governance where the vendor company uh, is located. So um, that's the approach you're taking. You're right. There's a big middle of countries. Uh, you know, some have taken our approach, like the United Kingdom says we're looking at any kind of extrajudicial control of the vendor is one that should be excluded. We've seen Japan take uh, strong moves. We've seen a number of other countries come more a direction, but there's a, a lot in the middle who we're asking to adopt principles and then rigorously apply them. We know they're going to make their own sovereign decision at the end of the day about how to protect their citizens and protect their networks. We want them to do that with their eyes wide open about the, the ramifications of continuing to build networks out with untrusted vendors. One thing I'll add is uh, an argument that you hear from, from many who would, you know, prefer the option of being able to split the baby is that, hey, listen, you know, China plays hardball, and if we were to exclude uh, Chinese vendors from our 5G networks, we might very well be uh, in line for some retaliation, commercial retaliation. I mean, you've seen the Chinese have used this before, whether it's regard with, with regard to uh, – Salmon exports from Norway after uh, the uh, the Nobel uh, Committee awarded uh, the Peace Prize to Liu Xiaobo. What happened in, in South Korea after they uh, installed some uh, U.S. Uh, missile defense uh, systems? Uh, and I, you know, certainly um, I can understand why people would raise that as a as a, as a potential argument. But I, you know, we would ask them to flip that around and get back to the the point. If indeed we we agree that these five G networks are going to be as sort of a super critical uh, infrastructure, do you want a company that is subject to control by a government that frequently uses whatever economic leverage it has uh, to get its way politically or or otherwise? You know, that's something you need to consider from the other side as well. Yeah. And so, um, I wonder if either of you could comment about how this market is beginning to develop. Obviously, it seems there have been a lot of uh, changes uh, sort of in the geopolitical context over the past year. But for those countries that are on the fence or trying to work through this problem and they say, are there alternatives? Who can come in and, and, and provide the different components of the 5G network? Are there new companies uh, stepping into this space or, or you know, will be uh, bigger players in the market a year from now? 
And critically, will they be able to compete on price? You know, James Lewis from CSIS says that in some cases, uh, China has come in and, and Huawei's come in and offered 90% discounts just to get their foot in the door. Mm-hmm. Maybe in some cases it's 50 or 60, but for developing countries, price still does matter. Mm-hmm. And so are there alternatives? How's that market shaping up and how can they compete? That's an outstanding question, if I may start on that one too. Um, uh, in the United States, uh, we're seeing our largest wireless carriers move out with roughly three vendors for the radio access network. The whole ecosystem is much larger. There's a much larger number of players, but there's a limited number of players that uh, provide what they call the base stations, the radios, and the antenna that are closest to the user. Uh, those three major ones are Ericsson in Sweden, Nokia in Finland, and Samsung in South Korea. Uh, there are, of course, then the uh, other two providers in, in China. Uh, I think, you know, our carriers in the United States are going to move out with those uh, three largest vendors for the radio portion. Uh, the evolution that's occurring in 5G is this uh, movement to software and there to be more software-defined networking that lets you to prioritize how certain data transits the network, how you can ensure that you have almost constant connectivity at very high rates. So this movement to more and more sophisticated software, what they call software-defined networking, uh, can be actually appeal to our strength in the United States. We have very good uh, software uh, capabilities. We have had a, a trend in recent years for more of the hardware manufacturing to move overseas, but we're certainly doing a lot of the software work here in the United States. There are some very innovative companies working in this area of uh, improving the open interfaces between the base station and the radio and the antenna. That kind of open interface allows more players to be in that market, to be their more open competition in this, to, to play to the, the strong suits of uh, Western companies, to be uh, pro- providing innovative solutions at all those different levels, new kinds of functionality, uh, and compete on the basis of functionality in price, not based on a lock-in of, uh, of legacy equipment in the system. So I think over the longer term, we're going to see, and maybe not that far off, actually, in the very near future, we're going to see more and more companies evolving into the software-defined networking space, empowering a whole new uh, ecosystem of providers. The one case I would just cite is Rakuten is a uh, Japanese uh, startup wireless carrier who's going to move forward with a new innovative model providing uh, radio access through this model that I was just mentioning. And uh, on, on, on the issue of price, I mean, certainly um, it's, it's tough to refuse a 90% discount. But again, ask people, why is it that the Chinese state is willing to subsidize Huawei or ZTE to such an extent that they're able to offer what are clearly non-commercial terms? And you have to conclude there's something going on here other than commercial interest. Chinese uh, security organs, Chinese intelligence organs, Chinese foreign policy apparatus clearly sees a benefit outside of the purely commercial realm to their interests in these areas. And, you know, obviously, if you look at this from the point of view of a sort of competition policy, I mean, this is a classic predatory play to become a monopoly, right? You subsidize your offer, drive uh, everyone else out of business. Then at the end of the day, when you're, you know, the main guy left standing, um, you know, at that point, uh, obviously, a Huawei or ZTE would have you know a huge amount of power to to raise rates and, and have its way. Um, so it's both unfair from a you know, sort of economic perspective, and it also again I think very clearly demonstrates that China has a lot more than just winning some commercial deals. 
uh, at stake here. And that's something that people need to keep in mind. I mean, I think the Trojan horse was offered for a pretty good price. It was free, I believe. It doesn't mean that you should take it and roll it inside of your citadel. And, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, from an objective perspective for a leader that has the long-term interests of their country in mind, that's a pretty compelling case. Uh, I think part of the problem we've run into is that you know, not all leaders in the developing Indo-Pacific are looking out for the long-term interests of their country, and sometimes uh, uh, bribes and payoffs and kickbacks uh, are, are, are sufficient and enticing. And that you know that's uh, more appealing to them than worrying about the security of their citizens. You know, ten years down the road. Um, the last question I wanted to ask about was um, was data localization. Uh, I'm a India South Asia scholar here, so work a lot with India policy, and we've had a number of uh, trade and sanctions disputes that we've been trying to work work through. And one uh, sort of forthcoming challenge, it seems, just out there on the horizon is this question of their uh, draft proposals for data localization policies. And I thought, you know, you made a sort of compelling case uh, as to why we don't think that that's a productive route for them to be going. But how much of a divisive issue is this going to be? And, and how will we respond to countries that do end up unveiling data localization policies that, that the U.S. government and U.S. private industry finds inimical? I mean, will, will there be forms of retaliation? Um, is this just sort of how sharp of a divide is this becoming, whether it's with India, Vietnam, or or potential other countries? Yeah, it, it has the potential to evolve into quite a serious issue. You know, we stand behind the need to have free and fair trade, that our companies shouldn't be disadvantaged relative to another country's uh, companies, that if we have an open system, which is what we do about for the flows of data, that we shouldn't be walled off from participating in, in other markets. Um, you know, the flow of digital services, which is all kinds of uh, back-end operations occur overseas. There's there's a lot of reasons why uh, other countries benefit from having the free flows uh, of data economically. Uh, they should think carefully about those and what those might, how those might be jeopardized potentially by regimes that cause there to be a lot more friction across borders. Mm-hmm. Um, it's premature to, for me here to opine about what measures we might take, but it's something we do take very seriously. And I would just point out on, on the sort of on the positive side of that agenda, the U.S.-Canada-Mexico agreement mm-hmm. contains provisions that I think prohibit data localization, and I think those are also. Uh, the same provisions appear in the CPTPP agreement that a lot of our, you know, uh, friends and partners in the Asia Pacific uh, have signed up to as well. Well, thank you for that. Um, I'd like to get some audience involvement here. I have more questions, but I know uh, I think we can start here up front. I already see several hands up. This on there we go. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. My name is Chris Orr. I am currently a Department of Navy contractor attached to the Pentagon. I'm also a former Air Force officer, former Federal Law Enforcement officer, and last but not least, former intern at the Heritage Asian Study Center back in the day. Um, direct this question to both Jonathan and Robert alike, whom e- either war you wants to tackle this question. I'm sure both at least somewhat familiar with Executive Order 13865 that President Trump signed into law directing greater protection of our nation's power grid against EMP attack. 
Um, from doing my own master's level research on the EMP threat, it shows that besides the threat of EMP toward a grid from a nuclear missile detonated above the Earth's atmosphere, the, the grid is also highly vulnerable to cyber attack. So knowing as we do that the Chinese military doctrine does have EMP as a component, seeing as kind of a ultimate fruition of sixth generation hybrid warfare, um, what concrete steps can be done, will be done to actually enforce EL-13865 as far as protecting our grid from a cyber attack from the Chinese, whether via proxy such as Huawei or ZTE or any other method that uh, Beijing may choose to employ. Thank you. Uh, I can take an initial stab at that. First of all, thanks for your service in law enforcement and to our military. Um, I don't have a probably the f- most fulsome answer you're going to want on the EMP area. I will say that as a result of President Trump's executive order on securing uh, federal networks and securing our critical infrastructure for our country, we've taken a fresh look at the need to improve information sharing about cyber threats uh, and how we can work more closely with critical infrastructure sectors. You know, the Department of Homeland Security is leading efforts to work with um, the different critical infrastructure sectors. But also note that uh, the Federal uh, Energy Regulatory Commission uh, is also rolling out new cybersecurity uh, standards that they have been over the course of the last few years to improve the security of our electric grid. So there's a, there's a number of efforts uh, underway uh, on the, the more on the, the cybersecurity threat angle to uh, to our electric grid. Leave it at that. Thank you. My name is Sean Ling uh, with WQEA and Sound of Hope Radio. So I have a couple of questions. Uh, first one, you mentioned about um, United Kingdom's uh, Huawei Oversight Board identified 500 loopholes in Huawei's devices or software. So are this knowledge still confined in the intelligence community or is somehow translated into the consumer market and people who have interest in Huawei's technology may be seeing the, uh, the drawbacks in Huawei's technology? Uh, my second question is that um, uh, why are you waiting for the those mid middle the country in the middle waiting you know try to uh, use the uh, midway strategies <laughs> for Huawei's uh, and at the same time Huawei's expanding very aggressively in Latin America and Africa as well. So do you worry that actually Huawei's actually outpace your response strategy? Great, uh, great questions. If I can start there. Um, you know, I, I think a United Kingdom official said uh, publicly that he thought the the software uh, sort of sophistication of Huawei was back to the early 2000s. Um, uh, we've also had a Columbus, Ohio-based company called Finite State that released a report analyzing uh, the firmware, which is the software that rides on hardware components. And they found many, many vulnerabilities, but some of the most critical ones were uh, ones related to the hard coding of the uh, passwords into the, the firmware itself, so easily discoverable, and then to, to take advantage of those, and also cryptographic keys being inappropriately inserted into some of the, the firmware. Then uh, there was uh, versions of firmware that were uh, large, way outdated that still contained vulnerabilities, so they saw it way below the market standard for others. So from a What's available in the public domain, there's a substantial amount of information there. There's obviously things that we keep uh, close to the government for reasons that we need to protect, uh, that is sources and methods, but uh, there's, a, there's a, uh, a good amount of information that's uh, out there publicly. Um, you know, we're aware that uh, there's um, 
untrusted vendors uh, in the form of Huawei and ZTE in a number of uh, developing markets in Latin America and Africa as well. Uh, we are part of, you know, part of our global uh, campaign to talk to governments about the risks we see as we move to 5G, the more critical nature of protecting networks than we saw with regard to 4G. We're talking to all governments around the world, making sure they're aware of our uh, views on this and trying to raise our collective understanding together uh, about uh, the risk to 5G and the critical infrastructure we're going to see in the future from having an unsecure uh, 5G vendor. So um, we're, we're talking to them. We're also talking about the uh, finance uh, tools that are available in a number of forms. Uh, there's you know development banks. There's uh, U.S.-backed financing as well that can be used in some cases for telecommunications equipment. So uh, we're working closely with governments around the world to make sure that we can have a secure 5G. The one thing that uh, we started in the State Department as of last August was a Digital Connectivity and Cybersecurity Partnership. Secretary Pompeo announced that with an initial uh, backing of $25 million. But it's really a coordination mechanism so that we can see all these finance tools put together to help uh, develop uh, secure communications equipment. It's also backed by str- strong cybersecurity practices. And then that over time, we can uh, see the, the model that in our vision for values-based and a bottom-up approach, a decentralized approach to the Internet, continue to be uh, something that's a practical reality uh, around the globe. And one thing I would add to what Rob just said is that, you know, regardless of whether or not we're winning or losing in any one particular market, one thing that is for sure is over the last year, this issue has really become something that is out there in the public. And so um, – even if government might be wavering or trending one direction or another, the fact of the matter is there's a lot more pressure and a lot more scrutiny on this issue. And I think, you know, over the long run, that's going to be very helpful as the public, whether for reasons of privacy or because of you know, protecting our intellectual property or national security concerns. It's going to be harder and harder for governments to ignore those concerns as they make these decisions going forward. Huawei seems uh, determined to make your job easier lately. Uh, there were news reports just in the past week that they had been doing some work in North Korea that may have been in violation of, of, of sanctions. Has that had an impact in discussions we're having with our partners or how we're approaching the issue? Is this just greater recognition that really this company may be more problematic than we first envisioned? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we talk about uh, trusted vendor, uh, the, mo- the, the, the most important indicia of that being the relation, the legal regime that company operates under in the company, in the country where it's headquartered. But when you look at the kind of company you want to work with in the future, it's one that follows best practices, abides by sanctions laws that are global, export control laws in the United States, has a transparent ownership structure. Huawei does not have a transparent ownership structure. Um, it's also unclear how their a lot of their financing occurs. So there's there's a lot of reasons to be concerned about the trustworthiness of, of that company. Stories like that keep adding cumulatively, I think, to the reasons why it should be easier and easier for uh, partners around the world to say this is a company that, that does not operate under the standards that we operate under. I should point out that if you look at the, t- the three you know leading vendors now, Nokia, Ericsson, Samsung, they're publicly traded companies. They have independent boards. They have respond to the legal regimes of uh, Western democracies. So you can count on those those top uh, people in those government in those companies to respond uh, appropriately to 
uh, legal requests or inappropriately requests to also respond appropriately. Uh, that's not going to be the case when the Chinese Communist Party calls on Huawei to take specific actions that are deemed to be in the Chinese Party's interest. And I would just point out this is exactly you know that sort of a track record, which is why Huawei is on the entity list right now, right? Um, that's not, I mean, again, it's related but separate issue from the, the our 5G campaign that they have, you know, we've got indictments of them having broken sanctions law, of having uh, stolen intellectual property from other firms. Um, so this is definitely a company that uh, not necessarily the one you want to entrust the family jewels to. Hi, thank you. Uh, on that note, I can envision a, a situation where Huawei or any other untrusted vendor is expanding to developing markets and they are successfully selling their infrastructure products to the private sector. Uh, and again, I can envision a situation where a lot of companies that do business with the United States and do business using technology, uh, that would expose U.S. companies indirectly to risks associated with, again, investment in these types of situations. Is the Trump administration considering imposing more formal enforcement actions that would prohibit uh, U.S.-based companies or companies that have any sort of U.S. relation or U.S. commercial link from transacting with other companies that do contract with, you know, untrusted vendors or something of the sort. You're talking about how you're talking to countries, informing them of the risks that exist. We've seen some, you know, export control uh, measures regarding exporting technologies, uh, Huawei technology to United States. Uh, is there any, any, if the situation doesn't improve, are there any strategies to, again, rely more on enforcement and not not necessarily as much on informing and and, and raising awareness? I, I mean, uh, I uh, the answer right now we're not considering any sort of action that would stop a company from from doing its business as long as it was doing so in accord with the law. But uh, clearly, companies need to be aware of the risks, whether to any private data that they might be exposing to an untrusted vendor or business secrets, you know, or whether, you know, national security relevant information, whether that's, you know, law enforcement or otherwise related. Um, you know, Rob pointed out, and, and Secretary Pompeo has been very clear, look, sovereign countries are going to make their own decisions. What those consequences might be, uh, you know, um, you know, you're going to have to live with it, obviously. It's your choice, but you'll have to live with it. But it's... Uh, I, we're not contemplating measures along the lines that you just noted, at least not at this time. Hi, Chia Ching with United News Group Taiwan. I have two questions. A general question is how would U.S. and Taiwan work together on um, cybersecurity issues? And the specific question is um, um, do you believe that China is trying to interfere Taiwan's um, upcoming presidential election? And if so, um, how would U.S. help Taiwan to keep a fair election? Thank you. Thank you very much for that question. Uh, obviously, U.S. and Taiwan, informal, non-diplomatic relationship, but we work very, very closely on matters of, of common interest. And certainly cybersecurity is one of those. Uh, I would point out that uh, in one particular area where we have partnered on cybersecurity, uh, this global uh, cooperation and training forum uh, event that was hosted in Taiwan just uh, just a couple of months ago. And I think it had delegates from several dozen uh, countries' cybersecurity offices. 
there were presenters from Taiwan. There were folks from my old office, uh, from Rob's shop. Um, and it was a great opportunity for us to get the word out about you know, the various network security issues we've been talking about today. So that's one very practical manifestation of ways that we've been able to work together on this issue. Uh, with regards to the election, yeah, I mean, clearly the United States is very, very worried about uh, attempts by foreign uh, adversaries to interfere in elections. We all know that uh, that Beijing is, you know, putting a lot of pressure. They have a definitely have a preferred candidate in Taiwan's upcoming election, and uh, they are going to use every bit of leverage they have in many realms, including the cyber one. Um, and I do know that we are in consultations with our Taiwan partners and ways that we can uh, work together to to prevent any sort of interference with uh, the, you know, people's right to exercise their their democratic suffrage. My name is Nick Duan. I'm an independent uh, cybersecurity researcher. Um, thank you for um, Heritage Foundation for this um, very informative um, seminar. And uh, I've been drawn to actually to the seminar title, Accessing Asia's Digital Future. But I didn't get a very clear picture how the future would look like. And um, um, all I hear is, you know, um, the administration trying to stop Huawei from gaining market share. And um, uh, at this point, you know, Huawei is in um, 170 countries. And uh, um, at least from my perspective, the administrative effort of stopping Huawei from growing market share uh, isn't really working, especially uh, when the administration is trying to send different signals. They're trying to mix um, uh, trade issues with national security, and then now uh, Trump also trying to um, agree with President Xi to uh, allow companies to apply um, exception to supply uh, Huawei with um, uh, digital um, uh, digital equipment and other technologies. So um, I like to ask the panels, uh, what do you see the actual future, the real future would look like? Uh, can the 5G future uh, exist without Huawei? Uh, is the administration going to keep the confrontational uh, stand uh, trying to prevent Huawei from growing? Or is there some point in the future that um, technology and countries can coexist? Thank you. Great. Uh, do you want to... I'll, I'll take a first stab. Um, you know, with regard to the, you know, the future, digital future of Asia, I mean, there are two competing visions. Ours is uh, summed up in, you know, the Indo-Pacific, you know, the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. And as that relates to the Internet, as Rob mentioned, there is a multi-stakeholder uh, view of Internet governance. And then there is a very state-centric view of Internet governance. There is a free market uh, model of economic competition. And then there is a very state, uh, heavily state interventionist model of economic competition in this sector. You have free-flowing data, or you have data that is very, very carefully restricted. Uh, you have, you know, rule of law and due process, or you have, you know, the lack thereof. And I think, um, you know, clearly, uh, the fact that Huawei is present in many countries around the world, as you said, I don't necessarily uh, take that as a as a sign that, you know, the, the future is Huawei's. I mean, Huawei has some equipment here in the United States in you know, previous generations of technology that I would not a technical expert, but not quite as sensitive um, as the advanced 
you know, wireless stuff we're talking about in the 5G context. Um, and I think as people, uh, and again, this is kind of uh, related to the question that I answered over on this side, I think the issues of what you're actually, what the package deal includes when you're going with some of these vendors is becoming uh, more top of mind, not just for governments, but for you know, broader swaths of stakeholders uh, in these societies. Uh, I'm not at all convinced that our model, which is in fact the one that has led us to, you know, the actual internet that we that we that we enjoy, which has been such a huge driver of uh, global economic prosperity over the last number of decades, I wouldn't write off that uh, you know that that uh, our model is not the one that's going to end up prevailing. So, if I just add, I I just really want to clarify that our strategy has nothing to do with market share. We don't. That is not driving what we're doing. Ours is purely a security posture. We are telling our partners and allies around the world the threat that they will be introducing into their systems if they go with unsecure vendors, untrusted vendors. Um, I think it's really interesting that the G20's recent statement highlighted the importance of global data flows, but it also very much highlighted the words trust and confidence by businesses and users and consumers. That's the vision we have for the future is to have uh, trust and confidence in uh, these systems, 5G, which will underpin a huge data economy, uh, much more access to data, much more generation of data, we may not need to be done in the, the vision that, that Jonathan just mentioned. Uh, it's really important that we continue to have vendors in that process that will abide by the rule of law, that have to abide by the rule of law. And as I said before, they're responsive to independent boards of directors and people that are responsive and are uh, part of our Western legal traditions that include the following the rule of law and due process. So you mentioned one other thing that neither of us addressed, which was uh, the the meeting between President Trump and Xi in Osaka. And um, you know what the administration has talked about is expediting uh, review of applications for you know potential exports that don't have a national security nexus. Uh, there's been no discussion whatsoever of uh, any changes to our posture with regard to exports uh, to Huawei that do have a national security nexus. So want to make sure that that's that that's clear. Um, that's something that has been consistent. Jung-Han Kim, the Washington correspondent for Tonga Daily and Channel 8 TV of Korea. You may have already answered my question, but do you think um, Huawei, by helping out North Korea building the 3G wireless network for eight years, do you think would it be logical to assume that China actually violated the U.S. sanction on North Korea? That would be my first question. And the second question is, um, I've been hearing about the cooperation between Japan's NEC and South Korea and Samsung building a 5G. Um, could that, how strong is that cooperation at the moment? And could that be the strong alternative to Huawei's aggressive venture into this arena? Thank you. Can I do the second one first? Yeah, give me a start. Yeah, I'll, first, yeah. I'll, just, I'll start, start with the second question. Um, you know, there's going to be, as I mentioned earlier, a number of, I think, innovative partnerships that occur in ways that the um, ecosystem is shaken up a little bit by having more interoperability, more open architecture and open interfaces between different components. So partnerships like the one you're mentioning, I hear of many others, too, that are that are growing that move beyond the where we are now with a very limited set of uh, radio access network vendors. Yeah, on the on the North Korea question, obviously that continues to be one of the administration's absolute top priority foreign policy issues. 
uh, denuclearizing North Korea, and the pressure campaign is, you know, the, uh, the 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 essential tool for for making the conditions ripe for that to actually happen. So, of course, yes, we are absolutely concerned about any reports of Huawei or anyone else uh, violating uh, sanctions and, uh, and and relieving pressure on North Korea. So, we're paying very very close attention to that. Well, I have to say, I, most of you have asked some very good questions because you've marked off almost everything that was that was on my list. Um, we really have covered quite a lot of ground today uh, on really everything from 5G to, to data localization. I am uh, in debt to you both. You know, these two guys work tirelessly every day waging battles that we don't even know exist. <laughs> Um, with significant stakes, uh, our digital future, our country's digital future on the line. And so I have a lot of um, admiration for uh, what you both have done, and um, I'm grateful for you taking the time out of your day to come and, and address this group. I'd love to have you back sometime and keep up the good work. Excellent. Thanks for Thank having you. us. Appreciate it. Yeah.